Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can also check us out at Apple, Google, Spotify, and Good Pods. And always uh, please subscribe, rate, and review the uh, show to and share it if there are episodes that you really like. Hopefully this one will be one of those. I'm looking forward to this conversation a lot. If you go to the YouTube channel, you can also uh, check out Quick Take Reviews as well as uh, various uh, filmmaker interviews that I've done over the years. And uh, just check out the podcast wherever you listen. Um, you can also check me out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. And uh, this past month, I started a new series over there called uh, Leaving the Collection. It's about uh, movies that basically have kind of run their course throughout the uh, uh, their time in my collection. So I basically give them one last spin and uh, do a review about them. And you can also check out uh, brief uh, write-ups on two of the movies that we're going to be talking about today. And that's at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. Um, this, this episode actually takes... Uh, the genesis of doing this episode actually... Uh, goes back to the best of 1996 episode that we did at the end of 2021 and uh, where today's guest brought up one of this filmmaker's uh, films as one of their top 10. And it led to a conversation about that uh, filmmaker and an interest in discussing the filmmaker more. And he's a returning guest, not just from that episode, but also from past episodes where we've talked about David Lynch, where we've talked about um, Ed Wood, and it is always a pleasure to talk to Matthew Timms. Matt, thank you very much for joining me again. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Um, so the filmmaker that we are talking about is Alan Parker, a British director who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he is an interesting filmmaker. He's got some really interesting credits to his name. Uh, the ones you're probably going to be more familiar with is Avita, Pink Floyd the Wall, which we're going to be talking about, The Commitments, Midnight... Um, I need to go. Do you think people would know the life of David Gale, or is that kind of floated into obscurity? I almost... It's weird because that is his last film, but I feel like that is probably one that's kind of lost to obscurity which is which is which kind of blows my mind but i mean the fact is it wasn't that successful when it came out um he also i remember oh sorry i remember it wasn't very well received at the time but like everybody was talking about it yeah so yeah um he also did bugsy malone he did mcknight express he did fame he did shoot the moon and did mississippi burning and um Matthew, uh, you were the one who brought the idea of talking about Alan Parker to my attention. What was it about his, What is it about him as a filmmaker that interested you? Well, part of it came from kind of a wider idea that um, when we talk about film, we tend to talk about auteurs. And uh, some people seem to be a little confused about the idea, but the idea of like the the idea that a filmmaker, that a director is the author of the film is kind of um, an academic framework. It's a way to discuss 
films, mm-hmm. you know, and we all know that it's, unless you're like Anna Biller who does everything or Robert Rodriguez is kind of the second, you know, um, basically there's uh, the idea that one person is the author of a film is nonsense, but, you know, it kind of makes it easy to, um, to talk about these things and say, you know, without having to refer to every single member of the crew and so on. But, um, so, but we've somehow morphed this idea into an, an auteur is a person who um, has a distinctive mark. And of course, there are filmmakers like that, like Hitchcock, like Kubrick, like uh, David Lynch, of course, you know, we've talked about. Even Ed Wood, I would argue, is mm-hmm. an auteur in a sense, because you can see his passions, his loves. You can see John Waters is kind of the same way. You can see the things that he loves on the screen. But... Um, there are other filmmakers who don't have the same kind of mark visually. Like there's, there's so many great uh, either journeymen or people who work primarily nowadays in television who can step into any genre and do it well. Like I remember I'm, I brought Michael Curtiz as my example, you know, because he did Yankee Doodle Dandy and Casablanca in the same year. And I was thinking about, I wanted to talk about someone like that and Alan Parker is my favorite example, partially because even though Michael Curtiz or um, Robert Wise, for instance, is another great example, they do a, did a lot of different kinds of films and they were really brilliant. Like you could plug them into any genre and they would do it perfectly. But they were in the days where things were kind of assigned to them. Mm-hmm. So Alan Parker, aside from being a great director and you know a wonderful talent, He's also a great example of this because he chose his projects. He wrote or co-wrote pretty much everything he did. And the idea that um, it makes him a better example for this kind of discussion because he chose these projects. He shepherded them. And it wasn't just, hey, you next week, you're going to start on the, you know, the in, you're not going to, you know, it's not, you got a sci-fi movie next week, read it up on it, you know, yeah. but he was choosing these projects, he was shepherding them and he was, you know, making them come to life of his own volition. And it's interesting because you can see how his interests and his passions worked their way into these things, but they're all vastly different kinds of films. They're vastly different style of films. Mm-hmm. And even... Mm-hmm. Um, like if you were to take someone who just has that auteur kind of mindset that's looking for connections and you were to show them without a title card, if you were to show them fame and Mississippi burning, they probably wouldn't know it's the same director. Mm-hmm. Or at least I don't suppose they would. Yeah. So that was kind of uh, why, how it came into conversation because I, I thought it was really interesting to discuss this uh wonderful and unique talent and also just the fact that I think he's kind of being forgotten a little bit because you know his last movie was almost 20 years ago and because a lot of them are kind of cult classics but they're not really that available on streaming and that kind of thing and I just want to pay tribute to this wonderful talent yeah um and honestly you know I'll admit I I have been I'll, I'll admit I'm not as familiar with Alan Parker's work in general. I mean, I think before we, before in preparation for this uh, episode, I think I'd really only seen three of his films. One of the ones that we're talking about uh, today, 
uh, Evita, which was the one that you brought up as one of your 10 best films of 1996, and then his final film, The Life of David Gale, uh, those, I think, really were the only three I'd seen. But, I mean, I had heard of pretty much every other major film he had he had done. But for some reason, he just has not been on my radar as far as somebody to catch up with in a larger <clears throat> degree. And it's funny because of the fact that two of the films that we're talking about were first-time watches for me. And it got me really excited to look more into his other work and see fame and see Midnight Express and see Mississippi Burning, see The Commitments and see Bugsy Malone and Angela's Ashes and uh, and Shoot the Moon. Um, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like I've been, I've been a, uh, I listened to A's All Over when it was going a few years ago and they they talked about a few Alan Parker films because he he had a lot of films in the early eighties and uh, you could tell the affection that they had for them and that affection really has inspired me to want to see some of those and one of them is directly one of the ones we're talking about is directly inspired by uh, hearing them talk about it on A's all over. But you know, going with what you said about the whole the whole auteur, auteur theory, and I, I think I do think it's one of the I think one of the big things that a lot of people misinterpret is this idea of about the auteur is people saying, oh, the auteur is the only the director is the only person who makes the film, which obvious, like you said, is not practical. But the idea. Okay. Idea that a, people work on these things, yeah. Yeah, but the idea that the filmmaker is the guiding force behind them in terms of the storytelling, in terms of a personal thing that they bring to the they bring to the project, and honestly, I almost I almost kind of want to put Alan Parker in a very distinct manner of that. Because, I mean, we are going to be talking about at least one of his musicals today, and we already talked about Evita. He he is somebody who, when it comes to the use of music in his films, is very interesting in terms of the way he uses it to build character, to build personality into his films. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of... We talked about it during the best of 1996, I'm not a huge fan of this the score for Avita. I think that's I think that really does boil down to my biggest issue with the movie. I'm not a huge fan of that score, but I I like the way that he found a way to bring those musical numbers to life with his actors and the the one that and we'll talk we'll get to it here shortly the one we're going to talk about is arguably one of the boldest attempts to uh do a movie musical i think we've ever seen well i want to say just first that you know if people know him typically they think oh yeah musical guy but none of his musicals are straight at all. Bugsy Malone's a crazy thing with children and pie fights, you know, and <laughs> fame is completely diegetic. It's a drama that has performance in it. 
you know, you could argue it's not a musical at all if you were willing to be yeah. a purist about it. Yeah. And Avita's an opera, and The Wall is just this crazy thing that's on another planet. And, you know, it, I guess you could argue it as an opera in a sense, but, you know, <laughs> the lead character only sings two or three times, and the rest of it's all, like, uh, a narrator or in his head or something like that. And so I love that every time he did a musical, he did it in a bold and bizarre way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think, but it goes beyond that, though, and we'll talk about more when we get to the other two films of his, because one of the things that really struck me about both of those movies is the musical score, and you, you, you've known me long enough, you know I'm a composer, and you, you know that film music is a passion of mine, and, uh, you know, I, I've loved listening to both of these scores, and you know, I mean, especially the collaborators they cho chose in this case. And, you know, it's funny, one of the films we will not be talking about that really is kind of forgotten, uh, Come See the Paradise, is a movie that arguably has spawned one of the most famous musical cues of all time because you heard it with every other action movie or courtroom oh. drama trailer in the 1990s Certainly, and yeah. it's 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 just one of those things where it's like he, there's something about him and music that i think he the way he uses music to help tell this story and you're right fame is not necessarily a straight musical but that song is like you can't once you hear that song you can't not think of it in terms of the movie. And I sing the body electric has kind of had a life of its own too. Like it's, um, it's, it's shown up on, it's been covered by punk bands and shown up on tribute albums and things. And I just love that fame in its, in and of itself, you know, became this huge, it's had this huge afterlife. It was a TV show. They remade it. Like there was, it was a sort of a reality show thing. I don't know if that actually got off the ground, but you know, like the idea that this one film, has had such a reach over the decades is also really interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, it was R-rated, it was dark, and in some ways very unpleasant. And I love that it has had this afterlife that, um, you know, nowadays you wouldn't really expect. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I'm. It, it's one of those movies where it's like... I. You know, it's entirely possible I saw this one, that when, when I was younger. I just don't remember it. But if if I don't necessarily <laughs> remember it, I just basically say, "Oh well, I clearly didn't see it then." But um, well, I, I first saw it on TV, and I saw it in an edited version. Mm -hmm. And then when I finally saw the full thing, I'm like, "Oh, this is a very different movie," <laughs> um, because so I see it, and it's all R-rated glory. And you know, I'd seen the TV show as well, and I was fond of that. But then once I saw the unedited version of the film, I realized that oh, they like neutered everything for the show. Yeah. Like almost yeah. all the stuff that was really interesting was gone. And mm. so I kind of liked the show less afterwards because it felt like an inferior kind of version. Although I know they had standards and practices to deal with, so it's not necessarily their fault. But Oh, yeah, know. and you, you have to think if they did one now, if they did TV version of Fame now, I mean, it would probably be on cable or streaming, and you could basically do... You wouldn't have to necessarily neuter it. 
Oh, it could be amazing. Yeah. If you did it, uh, if you had the right creative team behind it, certainly. Oh yeah. Um, but let's go ahead and get started. And it's funny because all three of these, the, all of these movies basically came out back to back to back essentially in his career. Um, and we're going to start with 1982's Pink Floyd, The Wall. And uh, this is obviously a, an adaptation of the Pink Floyd album, 1979 album. And uh, it was written by Roger Waters and has just really striking animation to it. And uh, the movie star stars Bob Geldof, who is another musician, as Pink, a, uh, a musician who basically is going kind of going crazy for a variety of reasons. And uh, it basically boils down to uh, a, it's basically a 90 minute um, dive into his psyche. Uh, what was your first experience with whether, whether it was the, did you listen to the album first or did you see the movie first? Oh, I'd, I'd heard the album first, and it was probably two or three years before I was able to track down the film because, mm -hmm. you know, it's like Blockbuster didn't have it. And, you know, I eventually wound up getting um, one of my friends let me borrow a, a bootleg that was like sixth or seventh generation. So it looked <laughs> muddy and nasty and I could barely see it, but it was still powerful enough that I could get the gist of what it was, you know, so it wasn't until, it's another thing that like, once I finally got the DVD, I could actually see it and realize, you know, the, the film was powerful enough as it was, but actually getting to see more detail of it. And uh, it was really, really interesting. And so uh, I'm going to turn it to you in a second, because I want to know your side of it. But it was really fascinating because having heard the album, you know, hundreds of times and memorized practically every note of it, it was really interesting to see how striking some of the departures were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm like you. I listened to the, uh, I, I listened to the album before. It was in the mid '90s or so when I got into uh, Pink Floyd, um, partially. Partially because I started listening to Dark Side of the Moon, Animals, and uh, some of their other stuff, and uh, it was around the time Division Bell came out. And um, a couple of years after that, I uh, went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It was shortly after it opened, and got to see the the you know the wall display that they have there, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's it's still there. If you get a chance to go up there to Cleveland, it's completely worth. It's it's a great experience if you're interested in rock music history, and if you're a Pink Floyd oh, fan, yeah. going to see their see that in particular is terrific. Um, so it was about '96, I think, is when I saw the movie for the first time, and it was I I think I'd seen it off of MTV, so it was it was kind of abridged it wasn't i don't think it was completely you know the version that was made but it still left an impact on me and then i bought on video eventually got the dvd and now i'm patiently waiting for somebody to i'm guessing it's a rights issue with the music is one of the main reasons Probably. why yeah. that 
why uh, why it's not really available on Blu-ray. And I I would love to I would love to see Criterion pick it up or one of those specialty uh, like labels. Arrow or Vinegar Syndrome or one yeah. of those guys. Yeah, they do a marvelous job with it. Yeah, certainly. Um, so I mean, it was. And it's funny because of the fact that, like, I, I think one of the, when I originally wrote my review was in uh, August of 2000, was coming off of uh, my grandfather, one of my grandfather's passing away. And I was in a pretty dark place. And so watching it, it this is, you know, the, the thing that you really realize is that this is, this is a really somber movie in a lot of ways. And I mean, a big part of it is the album. A big part of it is the music, which is very, um, very uh, intro. It 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 deals with a lot of emotional concepts, a lot of psychological concepts. And Pink is somebody who whose mind is breaking, and he really is not able to process life. He's going through a divorce. He's, you know, he he's tired of the night to night on tour he has he lost his father during world war 2 and it's it's one of those things where it's, it basically everything gets to him and he is primarily at in a hotel room uh basically having delusions psychological hallucinations and the you know this this is where the animation by uh, Gerald Scarf uh, really comes into play because his his animation design in this is absolutely fantastic. It's really striking what he does and the way that he and Parker work together to shape this film in a way you know in in a way that a lot of people kind of dismiss this as a nine-minute music video. And I can certainly see where they're coming from, but you do really see, if you really pay attention to it, you really do see the narrative come through in a way that's kind of profound. And part of what I love about the animation is, of course, it's very satirical, and it you know, harkens back to some of the um, other satirical animators of that period. There's a touch of... Terry Gilliam, there's a touch of Ralph Steadman, there's a lot of, you know, um, that kind of thing in there. But um, a lot of it is also really fascinating because it kind of moves at the speed of thought. Like I love that a bird becomes a bomber, becomes, you know, the, the cross bleeds and becomes a flag, you know? Like I love how everything um, morphs from one thing to another in a way that follows a strange kind of logic. I yeah. love that it isn't just random images, but there's things that thematically make sense and there's things that flow together. And it's one of those things that it's almost impossible to describe how good it is because it isn't just, here's a bunch of random shocking images, which is what a lot of uh, people who try to do surrealism now try to do. They're just, here's a bunch of weird shit. And, yeah. You know, yeah, it's shocking, but... Um, you know, everything kind of has a logic to it. One follows another. And 
um, you know, these flowers turn, you know, uh, you know, vaginal and um, phallic and, you know, and it becomes, you know, the subtext becomes very literal. And mm. I just, I love how it actually is integrated and it makes sense. And it isn't just um, weirdness for its own sake. Yeah. Um, but one of the other things I wanted to mention, you mentioned it as a music video, and I guess you could call it that if you wanted to be dismissive, but a lot of people don't quite understand, I don't think, that music video as an art was really in its infancy at this point. Yeah. Like yeah. most music videos that you would see on AMTV at that point were promo videos. It was concert footage and maybe them driving a car on a mountain or something. And the idea of like a music video that told story and had a texture and was more like a film with the exception of someone like the residents who did experimental stuff, you basically just didn't see that at that time. No. So no. the idea of, um, that didn't come in more to the nineties. And now that I think back on it, it's kind of amazing what bizarre surreal things we got to see on MTV, you know, mm -hmm. bump up against, you know, pop singers too. Like, um, but you know, at that point, music video was uh, a very new art that was just Barely figuring itself out, um, you know. At one, uh, except for the really crazy ones, like I uh, like I alluded to, you know, like you look at the video for uh, "Video Killed the Radio Star," and it's just them performing on a set. Yeah, and that was considered mind blowing at the time. And it wasn't, you know, and Thriller hadn't come out, so mm -hmm. you didn't have you didn't have Billy Jean yet. You didn't have. Um, uh, beat it you didn't have the thriller video so the idea of music video as an art was something that was kind of coming but um it wasn't something that uh, an audience i think would have been prepared for yeah and uh, there's a story and i don't know how true this is but i i love the story that uh, at the premiere it can supposedly when the lights went up um Steven Spielberg was heard saying, what the fuck was that? <laughs> and the producer just kind of bows at Alan Parker and smiles. And yeah. so, I, like, I, um, I, I've heard that story enough to where I, I, I do believe that probably happened. I mean, that's hilarious I'm because of the fact it. that it's hilarious because that would have been probably the same can that uh, E.T. played at. And uh, right. which ha had a rapture. I mean, it's it's wild to imagine this 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 movie came out the same year, the same summer as E.T. as the thing as Blade Runner, as Poltergeist, and it's it's just absolutely mind blowing. Um, and and I know you know that in spite of what some people think of him, uh, Spielberg is a genuine film fanatic he does love all kinds of films so even though people think of him for the family friendly movies like he does love all kinds of movies he's a big david lynch fan he's a big fan of you know and so the idea that this was too out for him at the time really means something <laughs> yeah like yeah oh no absolutely and uh yeah i mean you you've got to, i i can i can see where he's coming from i mean this is one of those movies where if you're not if you're not necessarily prepared for something like this in terms of what, you know, in terms of what your cinematic diet is, I, I can completely 
see this being, you know, what the hell am I watching? And what am I listening to? But I mean, also, I, I think there is a familiarity. If if you have a familiarity with an with the album, I think the mute the film will be easier to digest. So I can imagine if you walked in not having heard it, or maybe just having heard another Brick in the Well Part Two. Yeah. What a strange <laughs> slap in the face that would have been. Oh yeah, it's yeah. You you can't even I can't even imagine. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny when I was watching. When I was watching this, uh, you know, I was I was thinking about it, and you know, I'm a I'm a big Guns N' Roses fan, and it's like you've got to think that when they did the videos for like November Rain and Estranged and Don't Cry, that trilogy of videos, you got to think that Axl Rose had this movie in the back of his head because it's very much that you can tell in terms of what he's trying to. What, what, what they're trying to do in those videos in terms of alienation, in terms of, you know, just sadness and depression is basically comes from this. And, and that would have been, what, 10 years later? Yeah, it would have been about a decade later. Yeah, so to think how far ahead this was, mm-hmm. certainly. I, I think this is, you know, I, I one of the things that makes this such an interesting musical is the fact that a, it's a rock musical, which was still kind of relatively new for audiences. Like, we hadn't really gotten into the idea of contemporary music being possible for, like, musicals yet. And really, we still kind of haven't. I mean, I, I, I think, like, for the most part, most people's ideas of music, musicals still kind of harken back to like West Side Story, singing in the rain, sound of music and stuff like that. So, I mean, the idea of this being a musical, it's kind of, you you can kind of see where somebody coming to us now could think, oh, well, this is just a long music video. You don't really think about it as a music video. But I do love the way that the story, the the songs in this movie tell a very definite story of alienation, of just psychological torment. And, I mean, it it goes to some really dark places, but it also goes to, you know, especially in the third, last third of the movie, it goes to some really darkly hilarious places. And that's where the animation comes in. Well, and one of the things that's very interesting about this is that it is very uh, universal, but also very specific. Like, it's a very autobiographical story from Roger Waters' perspective. It's very much about Sid Barrett, but it's also about every British person of that period, Mm -hmm. because almost everyone had someone who died in the war. Yeah. Somebody got, they lost someone in the Blitz. They uh, either were um, alive during the bombing of London or they were, uh, they, one of their family members was. They know it uh, secondhand or something like that. So Alan Parker and pretty much every, uh, all the great British uh, musicians from that period experienced this, mm-hmm. you know. And if you read the autobiography of Ozzy or you read 
any of the books uh, by or about the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or just anybody from that period, World War II hangs really large in their memory mm-hmm. in a way that I think we can entirely grasp here in America. Because I know we've had 9-11 and we've had tragedies, but I don't think war is really as upfront and real to us mm-hmm. as it was to the British uh, during that period. And no. so it's a really strange case of being universal, but also very much inspired by two or three particular people. No, I definitely think that is, I, I definitely think you've got a point there, especially with, uh, especially with, and I, you know, we see it so much nowadays in uh, political discourse, you know, so many, so many Americans really, uh, when when something inconveniences them, they consider it tyranny, and they mm-hmm. consider it you know, and they use dialogue that compares it to the Holocaust, and it's like, without even thinking, without even taking into consideration just how inconsiderate that would be for survivors, let alone um, people who, you know, of especially the Jewish faith who law who uh, see anti-semitism um, as something that really is not gone away unfortunately and is continuing to rear its ugly head nowadays I mean y- you you definitely do bring up something I mean even after 9/11 like it you really you know we we don't really look at it's hard for us I think as it, it's sometimes hard for us as Americans to look at something that negatively impacts somebody else in a way that we can identify with. I I, I think that's something that we I I think that's something that is kind of hard to wrap our heads around. And even after nine eleven, I think that's the case. Um, well, and you have to remember that there's a whole generation of adults who were born after 9-11 so it's just a vague idea to them yeah like uh, there are people alive now who are adults who can vote and drive and i think even drink now who who can be shipped off to war who have never known an america that wasn't at war yeah yeah and um the idea that you and i grew up in a very different world than they do that uh, is kind of mind-boggling and I have to sometimes remind myself uh, that what we grew up with was different mm-hmm. and sometimes um, their perspectives are so far off because they didn't have it in their face yeah no I mean that that is you know that that is an excellent point one of the things we haven't really touched on yet that I definitely want to touch on because it's one of the more interesting aspects of uh of the movie is this idea that pink imagines himself as a fascist and a big part of that is you you see the theatricality of the lead singer in a lot of bands and a lot of biopics you see that in it's something that you are larger in life and you basically have these people worshiping you on you know you have them in the palm of your hands in a very real way. 
And one of the things that's really interesting is how you have a musical number like Another Brick in the Wall, which is basically against the idea of conforming to society, while at the same time, Pink imagines himself as somebody who is going to insist that you conform to his values. And I I think that that is one of the most... And we, we talked about this, I think, a little bit. There was a post... Um, on the movie around, it was, I think it was up to, leading up to the 2016 election. And, uh, you know, where, because of the fact that, I mean, the danger, the, the, the concern was there of Trump being an authoritarian. And you could see the MAGA cult uh, kind of build itself. And uh, I, it's, it's interesting it's interesting to see that this this sort of happen in real life or rebellion against conformity or against what society what you think society wants you to be like leads to demanding conformity to your values. Oh, definitely. And it's using fascism in particular a lot of it's a strange thing because a lot of artists um, use that as a kind of uh, an iconography and a bit for shock value, but then um, like it gets muddied. Like um, there was a point in about the time you're talking about discovering the film, Marilyn Manson was using fascist imagery in his stage shows. And I was never clear whether that was just for shock value or if in some level he really kind of dug it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't um, pretend to know his mind and I wouldn't uh, propose that we um, pretend to know what's going on in his head in particular now that he's gotten very far down the road in uh, drugs and, um, you know, seems to have lost the intellectual capability that he used to speak with. But, you know, it's it's there, you know, kind of every generation. If you look at the early days of punk, if you look at the decline of Western civilization, there were bands that, you know, started using punk imagery. And some of them did it just for shock value because it was that idea that this is something that's not allowed, so we're going to do it as a kind of a fuck you to the system. But other people really believed it. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of hard to ferret out who is who. And, you know... Um, uh, so it, it was really interesting to kind of um, see that people, uh, especially now, are uh, some people are really embracing a lot of these things, non-ironically, uh, clearly with no sense of irony, with no sense of distance, and uh, there are a lot of people who are really um, buying into the authoritarianism, and it's so strange that, in some ways, the concerns of 1982 are the concerns of now. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the things that they brought up in Evita also are things that we're seeing now. Like, um, I, I don't want to get too far down this road because it could just uh, kind of run the whole thing aground. But, you know, if you look at so much of Evita, it's based around uh, infighting and political power and coups and things like that. And, you know, the ladies got potential. Almost the entire song is about that. You know, it's yeah. who took power when. And, you know... Um, we're lucky that the people in January 6th were bumbling idiots. Yeah. <laughs> like the fact that they had no plan, the fact that they were dipshits, 
is the only thing that saved us. Mm. And I honestly don't know if we're going to be so lucky next time. Yeah. And I'm afraid that, you know, for all we know, this com next coming election could be the last free election we have. And I hope that's not true, but yeah. I don't know. And it's so frightening to think that these things that we thought we had put to bed are here again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, that was that was one of the that was one of the things that was so concerning about Trump. And I mean, you know, honestly, you're talking about the early 80s. I mean, you're you're also talking about the potential World War Three. You're you're talking about the potential. You're talking about satanic panic, which was in its infancy in the around the time the wall came out. But you're seeing that back again with QAnon and with Russia trying to invade you, invading Ukraine and the potential. What is that going to lead to? And you you see all of these things, and you're right. Like so many of these fears that were around in the early '80s are back again and you, you can we and can we fight them off this time or is it going to be something where there's going to be a generation that just willingly invites them in and to take over and that that is one of the things that is uh as one of the things that's uh really striking about that but yeah we we don't want to get too much off of the the films itself themselves. Uh, if I, before we leave that, I do want to just bring up one idea. Um, the idea that Pink sees himself in this way. Um, do you think that that is a personification of his fears about himself? Like, do you think that he? The way I've always sort of interpreted it is he his wife has left him. You know, his father abandoned him the way he sees it you know yeah. his mother was overbearing all this you know the teachers are overbearing so the way i always interpreted that was he looks at himself and says i'm a monster and what's the scariest thing he can think of would be a nazi right. and so the idea that he's essentially making the outside resemble what he feels he is inside and i just kind of wondered if you had an angle on that or what you thought about it I think that is I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable um, read on the text. I, I think you can definitely read that into the text. And it also just, you know, because of the fact that I mean you you have this idea, we have, you know, you you always kind of have this idea of artists as, you know, torture this idea of the tortured artist, which is cliched to the nth oh, degree. And I I think the idea of that is very valid in what Waters is writing about in the wall, whether it's the screenplay or the album. And uh I definitely think there's part of that because of the fact that you 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 certainly get if if Basically, everything you've told, you've been told, your life essentially leads to several different no's. Or like, no, you cannot have a happy home life because your father is not around. No, you will not have your your father. You you don't have a father figure, so it's like, how are you supposed to? How are you supposed to act like a a man? And you know. 
no, your wife is not interested in having you anymore. That is going to build up, and you see it explode in, I think, and at a certain point, you just get numb. I mean, that's that's the whole point of Comfortably Numb as a song, is that you yes. basically just get to this point where there's nothing else you can do except just wallow. And um, it's it's a brilliant... I mean, Comfortably Numb is probably my favorite song from the album. I'm not sure... It's, it's one of my favorite uh, stretches of film here. I think this brings the boy bring the boys back home and mother are just really haunting and powerful pieces of filmmaking from Parker. And, oh, and I love the way they they reorchestrate mother, especially like the dance sequence and yeah. stuff, like with the strings and everything. But please go on. No, I was gonna I was gonna say, yeah, the the reorchestrations of this in of the music in this by Michael Kamen and is are fantastic. It is is absolutely fantastic. I I love the way the music sounds in this movie. It's part of the reason it pisses me off that we don't have anything beyond <laughs> the DVD because of the fact that I would love to see hear this remastered in a way that just envelopes you. And I would love to see this on the big screen, ideally. Oh, yeah. Because I've never seen it theatrically. But but you can, you know, uh, on the DVD, you can still hear the tape hiss and stuff and yeah. parts of it. And, you know, it could definitely use a little cleaning up for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and I wanted to say, since it, it came to mind, that scene where the young pink is on the playground trying to find some kind of father figure is just devastating. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so many of those little bits and pieces, like when he's wearing his father's uniform and stuff, mm -hmm. and to him it's just dress up. Like that doesn't yeah. he doesn't yet understand what it means. Like it's so haunting and terrible. It really is. And uh, I I did want to mention. I mean, Bob Geldof is fantastic in this movie as Pink. He really captures the sense of isolation, and it's is really. You know, he doesn't say a lot in the film, but what he, but his physical performance is amazing. It's absolutely yeah. fantastic. And um, but Kevin McKeon, who plays Young Pink, I did want to point him out because you're right; he is absolutely terrific in in this movie. You you see, you see in the little boy the man that Pink is going to become. And you see that you you see that isolation really starts to set in on his face, and it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, Bob Hoskins as his manager is terrific. Uh, Jane Wright, who's a groupie who comes to his apartment, who comes to his hotel room, is absolutely terrific. This this movie is just such a dark. It's just such a dark fever dream of a movie. It really is nightmarish. Um, if you're not, if if and that's that's one of the things. Like we we talked about it earlier, it's like I can't imagine anybody who hasn't heard the album already coming to this and knowing quite what to think about it. Um, but Certainly not. yeah, I I love the way that it. 
you know, you listen to the album and you can feel the narrative flow. And I love that there's some songs here, and a big part of it is the orchestration. The way that Alan Parker bring, and this is where the musical aesthetic comes to. Um, it basically it takes the big songs to this grandiose, you know, this this grandiose moment where they are showstoppers. If you're using the traditional parlance of what movie musicals, what we talk about when it comes to movie musicals. And uh, whether it's animated, whether it's a collage of images, um, it's it's just absolutely haunting, and it is absolutely brilliant. This this is this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. Is it really is just amazing? And one of the things that really struck me watching it again, especially, is uh, that second version of In the Flesh that's at the rally. Yeah. Um, is almost ritualistic. Mm -hmm. There's almost something religious about it, which fits because the Nazis are very superstitious and um, some suggest they were into occultism and things like that. And it fits so well, but it's so dramatic and tense. And, um, but there's something also about um, how some of the smaller moments work. Like, like Mother is probably one of the most effective numbers, if you want to look at that in that sense, because it spans this huge amount of time and it doubles back on itself so much, but it has meaning um, both in the present and the past. And uh, Young Lust kind of has that too, where you know it's about uh, it's about discovering girls at one point, but there's also the groupies. It's about, uh, f you know, feeling sorry for himself because his wife left him. There's all these things happening at once, and it's all these layers and different moments of time colliding on themselves in this one song. And part of what I think is really interesting about the movie is that you could have kind of just filmed the album and it would have worked well enough, but I like that there are moments that are filled in further. Like if you listen to the album, you can kind of tell that his wife left him, but it isn't nearly as prominent or important as mm -hmm. it is in the film. Yeah. Like, and I love the dislocation of time. Like the fact that something that happened 20 years ago, something that happened yesterday, something that happens now, or potentially something that's happening in the future, they're all happening in this moment. Yeah. There's an almost Dr. Manhattan-esque sense to it mm -hmm. that I don't think, one in 1982 could have really been prepared for. Yeah. No, it's absolutely... It, this This is such a devastating film. It's such a striking film. It's, it, and in a way, it's very nihilistic, too, because of how bleak it is. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's a movie that... It, if, it really is a shame that it's not more readily available now. Because I think it should be. And oh, uh, sir, there are a lot of people in this younger generation that I think would really embrace it, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it's if they could just get to it. Yeah, or it's something like Fight Club, where they'll take the completely wrong lessons from it. So you know, it you, oh, it, it could go either way. <laughs> that's going to happen. Yeah, oh, there's yeah. going to be some. <laughs> 
but like uh, when I was in high school, um, one of my classmates was a neo-Nazi who loved Taxi Driver. And I'm like, uh, you really didn't understand that movie, did you, brother? No, no not at all. Um, so uh, unfortunately, if you want to make challenging art, you have to deal with the fact that somebody's not going to get it. Yeah. And that's another conversation perhaps for another show, but yeah, uh, we can't get too deeply into that now. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's let's uh, jump off of uh, Pink Floyd the Wall because I mean, Grant, I could talk about this. You know, I oh, I could talk about this movie even more. One, but I do want to get to the other two films that we're talking about. And the first one, the second one is a uh, 1984's Birdie, which stars yes. Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine, and as two friends who. We see their friendship largely told in flashback, and uh, the the present day context is uh, Birdie is in a mental institution. He was shell shocked by Vietnam, and Al, the Nicolas Cage character, is trying to get through to him, and Al was severely injured in Vietnam as well. And it's basically about these two friendships. And this is this is the one that really, uh, listening to them talk about an ease all over, partially because of the fact that I'm a huge Nicolas Cage fan. Um, I, I, I love Nicolas Cage as a performan- performer, and I really have wanted to get more into his uh, earlier work. But also because of the fact that this is, this has the first film score by Peter Gabriel. And if you know me, you know how much I adore his score for The Passion of the Christ. It's one of my absolute favorite scores of all time. So, you know, you, yes, yes. You, you, want me, you want me to get on board with your movie, put Peter Gabriel's <laughs> music to it. Um, and, uh, you know, this is... I was... Have you, had you seen this before, before I suggested it? I had not, no, and I'm glad that uh, I had the reason to look it up because it was very striking, and um, it um, it's so interesting because um, it winds up falling in line with The Wall in a lot of ways yeah. just because it's got the flashbacks and the flash-forwards, it's got the wars, uh, it's got the war aspect, it's got this and that, but, you know, one thing that really fascinates me about it is that it's set during Vietnam, which was pretty reasonably close to the present at the time, you know, but at the same time, everything looks older. Everything yeah. looks like it could have been in the 40s. Yeah. So in some ways, Alan Parker can't get away from World War II, in a sense. <laughs> um, and so there's this uh, kind of... Um, there's a decay to the film that's really interesting. And you see that a lot in Spain too, where you just look at the, the school and the streets of New York and everything's dirty and the, the paint is peeling off the walls and things like that. And you just kind of don't see that in a lot of films now. Everything's too clean. And so um, it's got really weird textures that are very interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that... Uh, makes sense exactly, but no, it does. And I mean, the fact that you mentioned that it it feels like it could be take place in the forties, I I think that's I I think that's an interesting uh, I I think that's very true because of the fact that you do get this 
sense, you don't really get this sense other than looking at things in terms of some of the vehicles, some of the cars that uh, we see and some of the technology that we see is largely, you, you wouldn't know that this took place before in the Vietnam era. Um, you know, more likely in the 60s or 70s. You wouldn't think about it. But uh, this, yeah, this movie was really, I, I love this movie because of the fact that it's, it's not only very sweet in terms of the development of the friendship between Al and Birdie, but also it plays to this idea of, again, it, you know, one of the things that we see throughout the movie is that Birdie really cannot seem to connect with humans. Birds feel like he's more at home interacting with birds. And, you know, one of the things that we are really seeing is we're seeing, we're seeing somebody who went through a traumatic experience. And we don't really get the impression before the war that he dealt with a traumatic experience. He just is something that, it, it's just something where birds were more of his obsession than interacting with humans. And, you know, you, you have to kind of wonder, it's like, does, does what happens to him in war simply make, make him realize that he, he's just incapable of connecting with humans at all, even going so far as to not be able to really communicate and connect with his best friend? Well, um... I think the, the war hastened it for sure, but uh, I feel like he was on that road for quite a while. And it's a very sweet film, but it's also funnier than I was expecting. Yeah. Like uh, the scene with the, the bird breeder talking about the Roman orgy and all that was very <laughs> funny. Like there's a lot of little bits that I didn't expect. Uh, even when uh, he and Al are on the beach talking about breasts, like there's something, uh, very human about it, but I like that the humor comes from the characters and isn't necessarily a bit. It's very human and kind of lyrical, and the structure of the film almost is kind of lyrical in a way, and it, um, you know, it doesn't, it follows in a, a, a vague sense, but it isn't strictly logical. Yeah. And, you know, you could really uh, wonder, you know, it must have been a difficult, I know, you know, the novel apparently was very fractured, so it must have been very difficult to decide when he was doing the screenplay, like, where do I put this scene versus that one, and how do I flow these together, because um, it, it, I just imagine the structure of it must have been a nightmare, and it plays beautifully now, but I can only uh, imagine it must have been so hard to figure out how to put the pieces in that uh, together. Um, one thing I did want to mention, by the way, is that um, I like the friendship a lot because uh, when we see male friendships on film and on television stuff, a lot of times they're, they feel like kind of like bits to me. Like I, I know that guys bust each other's balls a lot. You know, I know mm -hmm. that there's a certain teasing and a give and take and, uh, you know, male friendships tend to be rowdier in some ways than female friendships, but 
uh, a lot of times when I see these kinds of friendships on films and on TV shows and things, I wonder, they don't even like each other. Like it feels <laughs> like there's nothing connecting these people. And this felt fairly genuine. Like this felt like two people who really, uh, really love each other, even though they have really nothing in common. Yeah. Um, like they speak to each other, even though they're from different planets, kind mm -hmm. of. Yeah. No, and I, I think one of the hardest things about this movie, you know, and it's another it's another case with uh, um, Alan Parker basically trusting his narrative in a large degree to a character who doesn't really talk. Like, we don't... It, it doesn't feel like... I mean, especially since a lot of it takes place in the mental institution. We see him... We see Birdie in the mental institution, and he's he's not talking. And one of the big things that Al is trying to do, he's trying to get him to talk to communicate, because he doesn't want what happened, what's going to happen next for Birdie, um, to happen. And um, it's it's really it it really takes a lot of bravery to. In a film that is not structurally speaking a silent film to trust your movie to a character who's largely whose whose dialogue is either virtually absent or is very kind of nonsensical not really exposition there doesn't really mm -hmm. deal much in exposition or you know giving us in giving us verbal ins blueprints into the character himself, themselves that that takes a lot of courage, and it's one of those things that you really do kind of appreciate about um, Alan Parker as a director because of the fact that what it does is it it's him putting his trust in his storytelling on the images and on the physical performance that he's going to get from these actors. Oh, and one of the things you also have to think about is that Al is reacting the whole time. He's yeah. not really driving the narrative at all. Yeah. He's reacting to everything. And so in a sense, uh, he doesn't really push the story forward at all. So um, he just reacts to what's already going on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and he's sort of the audience surrogate in a sense. So it does take a lot of trust to um, expect the audience to go along with that. Yeah. And I know some audiences wouldn't to be honest, um, mm -hmm. you know, but I think enough of us did that um, it has a certain place. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, and I, Cage is such a fascinating performer, um, you know, and one of the things that you really, one of the things he really doesn't get a lot of crap for, and it's for a variety of reasons, partially it's because of some of the roles, types of roles he plays, <laughs> some of some of it is just the sheer amount of, you know, crap that he ends up, he's ended up making for a wide <laughs> variety of reasons, is he's somebody who can ultimately, as as crazy he as he can be on screen, he can also, he can also bring a lot of empathy to a character. And a lot of people point to leaving Las Vegas, but I would... I'll, I one of my go-tos in that respect is always when he is Sean Archer in Face Off, when he is the John Travolta yeah. character in Face Off. I 
there there are scenes between him and Joan Allen in that movie that are just absolutely just heartbreaking and beautiful because of the fact that we've seen what that character goes to and you see the exhaustion, you feel the exhaustion in his in his voice that is and you you feel the emotion in his voice that is just absolutely uh wonderful. And you I you really get a lot of sense of that in uh Birdie. I kind of wish that he would do more dramas now because like uh like I love Willy's Wonderland and some of these things. Like he's he's done some really fun films, but I kind of, I know he has this huge range and I'm not often seeing it these days because of, you know, some of the roles that he picks or has picked for him. I don't know the circumstances specifically, but um, a lot of the, um, like, uh, I'm, I'm lost the title of it, but like, you know, you look at um, uh, the Wicker Man remake and it's just like, oh, well, you, you can do better, you know, yeah. like it's just... <laughs> Um, it's the, I feel like for a while there, especially his talents were wasted. Um, mm. Even though some of them were really fun to watch, like I, I don't think they were quite up to the standard of what he could do. Yeah. Um, like for a long time, I I said half kiddingly that the last movie of his I liked was The Weatherman, um, just because I want to see more of that kind of role from him. Yeah. Uh, but he's always had kind of crazy things. Like if you look at Peggy Sue got married, he's really weird in that one. So, you know, he's always had uh, the two sides. Yeah. But, and part of what interests me about him as a performer is that he was able to kind of swing for these fences. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of him in a weird way, um, although they're very different, I think of him a little bit like Vincent Price because, who is my favorite actor, by the way. And what I love about him was he could be super campy. He could be very restrained. He could be quiet. He could deliver a stage performance. He could, do, and uh, I feel like there's something of that in Nicolas Cage as well. Mm -hmm. It's different, you know, and it's focused in kind of a different area. But there's uh, there's a similarity there, you know, where um, you can kind of morph into a different mode depending on what the role demands. Uh, a few years ago, I would have said that about Johnny Depp as well, but um, that's not been true of his last few films, and I suppose yeah. we'll leave that there. Yeah. But um, you know what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I, I definitely, yeah, I definitely do. Um, have you seen Pig yet? Uh, yes, yes, I did. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. he was really wonderful at that, yeah. very restrained. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, was, I was kind of hoping that, uh, I was kind of curious uh, if you had seen that, because, yeah, I, he, he was... It, it's one of my favorite films of his, honestly. He, he was just... I, I love that it was essentially sold as one thing and it became something completely different. It really gave him a chance to dive into something more emotional and more personal than we've, we've come to expect. I, I don't want to get too far off topic, but have you seen The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot? No, I have not. Was Sam okay, based on the title you're expecting a very exploitation film yeah but it's more like pig it's more of a drama that just has a crazy premise mm -hmm. and so there's a couple of those things out there now that are getting very interesting where you um are kind of sold one thing and you get something that's better yeah that you're not expecting mm-hmm 
Yeah, and uh, you know, I one of the things I do want to uh, one of the things I want to talk to talk about in this movie is the use of music because this is this is something that I mean, not just in the movies that are, we think of when it comes to using music from Alan Parker, like Fame, like Pink Floyd, The Wall, like The Commitments, and Evita. I I think the way he uses music is very interesting. I, the choice of Peter Gabriel in this, it gives it a feel, it gives the movie a feel that is really unlike what a traditional, like, orchestral score could do. I I think it gives it an off-kilter and uh, unorthodox sound that really works for the film. Uh, I do think it works for it, but it's kind of wrong in a way because it's anachronistic like it's too it's far too modern for the time period it's set in and i think something about the music being too modern but the look being too old something about all of that meshes together in a way that makes it really interesting and i can't quite put into words what that is but there is something really unique about it because it's and, and Vita has this too to a degree where like it's too modern and it's too retro kind of at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Um, what did you think of the use of La Bamba in in this movie? I am not entirely sure what to think of it, honestly, because I know it like the scenes are fun and um but I also, you know, and they're certainly fitting because that song would have been popular at the time. Yeah. But I kind of feel like there's something there I'm missing. Like I'm supposed to get something else from that music choice that I don't. And I'm not sure if I'm just missing something or if it was just supposed to be a fun song. I, I think I think to a certain extent it was a fun song. I think the way that he uses my my interpretation of it is the way that he uses it, the fact that he uses it multiple times, basically is kind of in the same way that Kubrick uses some of the classical pieces in 2001, where it's not strictly what we consider uh, orchestral scores, but he basically uses these as specific cues to mm-hmm. get to certain ideas. I mean, like, you know, the Blue Danube being used during space flight. Also, Zarathustra being used with the next form of human evolution. Legatee's Requiem being used with the monolith. And I think for, with La Bamba, A, I think it's kind of interesting that he uses a film, he, he uses a song by a recording artist who died in a plane crash um, to mm-hmm. represent moments of like Birdie and Owl kind of doing these crazy things and one of them including uh, trying to fly in the, uh, you know, in the landfill. Um, but I think, you know, and I think that's one of those things that's really kind of interesting is he uses it almost, he doesn't use it in terms of saying a time period so much as he uses it as an emotional representation the way some people would use musical themes. Uh, that's an interesting thought. And another thought that just kind of occurred to me while we were talking about it is that the song is very slyly sexual. 
-hmm. like the whole, you know, um, I'm not a captain, uh, I'm not a sailor, I'm a captain, but there's this influence that there's a sort of a, a wink and a nod, like, well, for you, baby, I will be a sailor, you know? <laughs> and so it kind of makes me think of the recklessness of youth is what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Like that kind of uh, crazed hormonal feeling you get at that age. And I think maybe that's part of it too. And I hadn't thought about that previously. I think that's um, I, I think that's part of it. And I mean, I think it's I, I think to a certain extent it's part of I mean, especially true because of when it's used at the very end and the mm -hmm. final yeah. the final shots of the movie and the way it ends. Um which to a certain extent you don't necessarily see coming, but I think if you look at the way La Bamba is used almost as uh as a musical theme throughout the film, it, it really does point to the fact that uh, Alan Birdie kind of bring out the most fun parts of themselves, of each other, in in their friendship. And I think that's I, I think that's another I, I do think that's something that's uh, I I do think that's something that Parker is going for in in the musical choice as well as the as as well as the youth. As well as the idea of youth and rebellious youth, and there's also the fact that the ending is strangely kind of abrupt. Yeah, like there's a lot of push to it, and then um, just kind of happens. And mm -hmm. it's there's something kind of interesting about that too, because you're desperate to know what comes next, but you're denied. You know? Yeah, and the fact that um, it plays on some level, almost like a joke, like, well, mm -hmm. I, I don't have anything, you know, like, um, like there's a, a very strange kind of humor to it. That's something that strikes me as very British and I might just be reading that into it, but mm. you know. Um, well, and I, I, I think to a certain extent, it is the idea that Bertie, I think to a certain extent, it's, it's Bertie, you know, showing Al how comfortable he is with him and uh, just being able to make that joke towards him is uh, is something that matters to him. So, yeah. One of the things that I, I did want to bring up, you mentioned the cars earlier, and I think it's really fascinating that when you see a lot of movies with classic cars, they're almost always in pristine shape because mm. they're lent by collectors. And so it was so interesting to see so many of them that were dirty and had holes in them and rust. Yeah. And uh, it gives the film such a weird lived-in quality. And you see that again with our next film as well. But we'll get to that when we get when we turn there. But um, I'm kind of fascinated by the way everything feels lived in. Yeah, I I I do really uh, I I do really like that the way that. Um... Alan Parker wants to uh, bring in authenticity to things, even when, e even when things kind of get kind of out of control and turn into the realm of this real. And I think you kind of see that in the wall as well, and the ways that he brings he he brings that particular time, those particular times in England to life, the ways that he. Um, 
the ways the production design you see in the hotel room, in the concerts, in in just the standing room, uh, you know, auditorium at the end with with him going full fascism. I I think that's I think that's something that there is an authenticity to the world that is important, especially for Parker, especially if he's got movies that to a certain extent go into a little bit of the surreal. And I think, uh, I think there are parts of Birdie that go into surreal aspects. There is a, a, a grounding sense to it in a way because this is familiar. And not, not to get too far into the wall again, but I was thinking just for a moment about some of the songs like Bring the Boys Back Home and stuff that feel very much like um, like some of the British songs that you would have had a sing-along in a pub, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's... Um, so in a weird way, it's kind of um, harking back to a, a time that no longer exists. It's playing on memory and nostalgia in a certain sense. Same with Vera, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like kind of doing that, the same thing with uh, some of the American music. Or, well, I know La Bamba's from Mexico, but, you know, it was yeah. popularized in America. So you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way... Um, the the movie La Bamba, the Ricky Valens um, biopic. When when was that in relation to this film? It was a few was years it a later. After? It was it was eighty seven. It was after this. So okay, I couldn't remember. All right. So yeah, the the movie the 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 song had not quite come back into popular culture because of La Bamba. New, newfound popularity, right? Yeah, it was okay. it was so still a couple. Yeah, it was still a few years off, and who knows? This might have been the reason, you know, producers decide, hey, maybe we should do a biopic with, about uh, Ricky Valens. Yeah. So. Um, I just, I hadn't thought about that again until just now. Like, oh yeah, well, when was that in relation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, it was a few years later. Um, yeah, I mean, it, Birdie is, I think it's on Tubi right now. Um, I yeah. think it, it was, uh, I think it's still, it's also on Prime as well. So if you haven't had a chance to, see it it's it's available there and it's it's well worth watching it's really if you're a fan of Nicolas Cage if you're a fan of Matthew Modine and if you're a fan of Alan Parker who hasn't seen it yet it's well worth watching um and it's fascinating to think that you know for many other filmmakers that would be the greatest film they ever made yeah you know and (laughs) uh for him it's just one in a row Mm -hmm. you know really great things so it's kind of fascinating to see what he was able to achieve and then go on to other great things. Yeah, it's funny because of the fact that, you know, you 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 see you see these prompts on Twitter a lot of like best director, best three for three, you know, from a director. Yeah. And a lot of people go McTiernan, a lot of people go Spielberg, Scorsese, you know, you know, the the three that we've got here from Alan Parker's makes a pretty good case. We've got Pink Floyd, The Wall, we've got Birdie, and then you've got uh, 1987's Angel Heart. And uh, <laughs> this is this is one of the ones you want to talk about, so I'm going to let you introduce it. Well, it's a, a very strange film that, uh, it, because it's kind of a neo-noir it's kind of a horror film it's kind of an update of ancient mythology in a sense 
and it's um, it's kind of uh, not like anything else I can think of from that era. Like I mean, there were a couple of good neo-noir films like Blue Velvet and things like that, but this kind of has a a horror all its own. It's got a texture and a vibe that's different from everything else, and it um, is very interesting. It's it's interesting personally to me because um, I wound up. Uh, in a script that I've written and hope one day to make so I won't spoil too much of it. Um, I had written a character that looks almost exactly like uh, Lou Cipher, like down to the fingernails. And when my wife read it for the first time, she kind of says, have you seen Angel Heart? I said, no, why? And she's like, okay, we're going to watch that. And then we watch it a few days later. And I'm like, <laughs> like, and um, it was it was so funny because I don't know if I saw an image from it and subconsciously it seeped in or something, or if it was just a coincidence, like two people having similar thoughts decades apart. But you know, I wound up um, in a very real way, kind of ripping off this thing that I hadn't seen yet, <laughs> and. And there were, you know, also thematic similarities. So I had to go kind of rewrite some of it and stuff. Um, actually, that that quote from Tiresias, uh, what use is wisdom if it brings no comfort to the wise, I had in that script. I'm like, okay, I got to get rid of that too, <laughs> you know. And um, so in a weird way, it's, it's so interesting because it runs parallel to something that, uh, to things that I've been obsessed with. And to think that it exists in such a beautifully, uh, fully realized form already was really fascinating. Uh, I don't know if I can, uh, if that makes sense without having read my version, but you know, like the idea that these um, things that were in my head apparently were also in someone else's, yeah. you know, decade four. Like oh, yeah. it was really fascinating to kind of pick those out and, one of the reasons I wanted to pick the film, aside from the fact that I just love it, is that also it's a good kind of opposition because if you talk about the musicals and things like that, you talk about kind of the straight dramas and then you go for what is in a lot of ways a horror film. You know, this is something that um, someone who's in that strict auteur, everybody's fingerprints thing wouldn't expect from mm -hmm. Alan Parker. Yeah. And um, it's it's so interesting because it has that same kind of uh, broken down, lived in feel. It's got the the de the decay and the rot and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has um, you know it's in the fifties, but you know there's flashbacks to uh, earlier times, and so World War Two plays a part in a sense. Yeah, and there's um so there's like thematic connections but they're much looser mm. it isn't a film about the war strictly as much as the other two are and yeah. so i like that it um you can see connective tissue but it isn't as direct it isn't as obvious yeah no and uh yeah this is this was my first time watching it but i mean this this movie's been on kind of my internal watch list for for a while because of the fact that it's Alan Parker, because of the cast, because of, you know, some of the stories that you heard, you know, famously Lisa Bonet, who was on the Cosby show at the time, you know, she, yeah. you know, Bill Cosby was not terribly happy with, you know, her, her very explicit, her explicit role in this 
movie, especially during one of the crazier sex scenes I think I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, um, certainly. And, uh, <laughs> you know, but also it has a score by Trevor Jones, who I have always been a, a fan of. Um, he's somebody, one of my first scores that I just absolutely loved was his score for the 1995 remake of Kiss of Death which is another neo-noir film. And, um, I haven't seen that one yet, but it, it sounds intriguing. He, he also, he, it's, it's a Nicolas Cage movie, actually. And uh, it's, it's, but it was also uh, one of David Caruso's big starring roles after NYPD Blue. So, uh, ah. but it's got, it's got a massive cast. It's really a terrific. It's, it's a good B-movie film noir. I'm not going to make a case for it to be being a great neo-noir, but it's an entertaining one for a lot of the cast that's involved. Um, but Trevor Jones, he, 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 did mu- <laughs> he did music for that. He did music for Dark City. He did From Hell, the, uh, on the Hughes Brothers film. But he also, in the 80s, he did The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. And he also did two films for Alan Parker in Angel Heart and uh, Mississippi Burning. One of the things that I'm really intrigued by in Jones's score here is his use of jazz, which makes sense because of the fact that it's a film noir, neo-noir, and one of the tropes that you see in a lot of neo-noirs, this use of jazz music and that type of jazz orchestration. And it's about a private detective played by Mickey Rourke, who is hired by a mysterious businessman, played by Robert De Niro, to look for a former big band singer who disappeared after World War II. And, you know, you, you've, already, uh, you've already talked about the style to a certain extent, and I, I love the way that this film looks. In it, it feels very contemporary, but you can see it feels very t- contemporary in terms of the visual style that is brought to it by the production values, like you said, it's very period. It comes from the 50s, 40s. You you definitely get that impression as well. And I think the score by Jones really illuminates that, both with its use of jazz as well as some more contemporary ideas like synthesizers and stuff like that that play a part in the score as well. Well, and one of the things I find very interesting about it, and I don't know if this is intentional or if I'm just reading too much into it, which is a possibility, by the way. Um, I noticed that scene where the um, uh, where he's reading through the the doctor's stuff, and he sees that that front brake revolver. That's the same kind of pistol that Pink's father had in the wall, and I wonder if it's if that was intended to signal that that was his service revolver from had he been in the war previously. And so there's a lot of things like that, that kind of um, hint that, um, you know, he may have been in the war, he may have been in the service and that in some way connects him to some of the other characters and the kind of shared trauma that they've been through and things like that. Or it could just be that that was what the prop master had. I don't know, you know, but but it's a very, you know, but that's a very British uh, firearm, and this story uh, takes place in America, and so mm-hmm. I can't help but 
think it was a deliberate choice. Oh and yeah. There's I'm... a lot of little things like that that are just uh, very particular details mm -hmm. that I don't always necessarily know why they were chosen or what they mean, but they feel like they have a greater resonance. Mm -hmm. No, and I, I think that's, I, I think that's a very astute observation. I, I do think you're probably onto something for, as, as a way for pa Parker to connect, you know, what we're, what, what, where this story's headed and, you know, to, to give us the idea of where it's headed because of the fact that it's like, you, you do get the feeling with any of these films that, Alan Parker make when Alan Parker makes a choice, and we didn't talk about the uh, cinematography and some of the Skycam uh, shots in that to to bring to mind Flight, which you know it's basically early drone shots, and uh, yeah. it was designed by Garrett Brown, who famously designed the Steadicam, and um, you know that's that's a very particular shot that. Alan Parker wanted to do. And in here, I think something like placing that gun, the the way that the music goes from this more contemporary feel into more a jazz feel, it really brings to mind this idea that this film is not just very old-fashioned in terms of when it takes place and the type of film, type of genre it is, but the idea that you're going to get something you're going to get to a place that is really upsetting and really unsettling. And I think the more contemporary aspects of the score kind of play into that. And because the the transition to a horror film that this movie makes is seamless. You don't really, you, you don't it really question it. Um, and this this is also kind of a pet thing for me. I've always held that horror and noir were kind of cousins, mm -hmm. you know, because you see so many similarities in the style, in the expressionist uh, stuff, in the shadows and things like that. But also, if you look at horror films of the 30s, uh, except for ones that are set in a particular past, they're wearing contemporary clothes and suits and things. So they're dressed like, you know, the, the 30s and 40s, they're, they're dressed uh, like the people in the noir films. Yeah. And so there's something very interesting about the two of them together that I feel like, it wouldn't be fair to say that they're one and the same, but they borrow from each other so much that uh, I often feel like they're connected and, um, you know, and a lot of uh, noir films during the that 40s period were really horrific. They were, mm -hmm. um, you know, really pushing the limits of what you could do on screen. Like uh, the torture scene in Kiss Me Deadly is one I think about a lot because, you know, even though it's tamed by modern standards, it was a big deal for its time. Yeah. And, you know, there's, and even you look at some of the sort of neo-noir films and um I think a lot about uh, Blood Simple, which mm. is, you know, definitely inspired by Dashiell Hammett and that kind of thing. But, you know, a character gets, a character gets buried alive. Like, it's really savage. Mm -hmm. And I feel like these threads are kind of 
woven close together. And I feel like as time goes on, you know, you mentioned Dark City as well, because that's a film that owes to horror and war almost equally in a way. Yeah. You know, I feel like uh, these things are very close to one another. And it's so interesting that here's a film that brings them both out. Mm -hmm. You know, here's a film that brings them together in a a very uh, literal kind of way. Well, I mean, you think about, you you also think about uh, German filmmakers who, you know, the German expressionist filmmakers from the 20s and 30s who they, when they came to Hollywood, what movies were they making? They They were making horror films. They were making film noir. Uh, Fritz Lang is one of the best examples of that. And, um, you know, so the two genres have always been hand in hand, really. And so it is, it, it, it's interesting to see as film noir was coming back into style in the 80s with stuff like Body Heat, with Blood Simple, with Angel Heart. Um, that you see these elements of horror and these elements of uh, genre really coming into their own. I mean, Blade Runner, look at Blade Runner. Blade Runner is a science fiction film noir. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of the best of both worlds, and Dark Sea is the same way. Well, and, of course, uh, Blue Velvet gets into this, too, because, you know, uh, it's very modern in terms of clothes and hairstyles, but it's got these uh, very old ambulances and cars and things. And so, you know, it it does kind of mix and match. Mm-hmm. So there was something kind of in the air at that time. And I my suspicion is probably that these old films were easy to license at the time. So they played on TV a lot. So they probably influenced filmmakers at that period. And I assume they were playing in revival houses quite a bit. Um, and I don't, you know, have receipts on this. So if someone wants to call me out later and tell me I'm wrong, you know, I'll definitely take it. But it just seems like um, there was kind of a revival of the style and yeah. And one, one thing I wanted to kind of uh, transition to is how much religion plays a part of this. And mm-hmm. since it's a fairly obscure film, I guess we shouldn't blow the ending. Um, but uh, because I can't trust that the uh, listeners will have heard, will have seen it quite as easily as some of the other films we may have uh, talked about in the past. Yeah. But um, there is something uh, very horrific about the history of world religions. And there's something about a kind of savagery to them that uh, is in full force here. Mm-hmm. And it's exotic because it's voodoo, but there's also, it. the film does kind of uh, mirror and wink at a little bit some of the similarities in the Christian mythology and that kind of thing. And I think it's really interesting the way it uh, kind of puts them together. Yeah. Um, and I don't, uh, I'm not an expert in this, and I'm certainly not a practitioner by any means, but I read a little bit about voodoo because world religions is a passion of mine. And um, voodoo is a very interesting case because it was a Haitian um, polytheistic religion and uh, Catholic uh, Catholics came in and tried to convert them. And what happened was... Um, the voodoo practitioners accepted Jesus as a God, but as 
one God of many. Right. Like they didn't quite get the whole message that he's supposed to be the only one. Yeah. So if you see a shrine, uh, a legit shrine of a voodoo practitioner, you will often see a crucifix along with the hand of glory and the other such things because Jesus is now one of their gods. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really fascinating that this film kind of takes this religion that to us seems exotic, but has a connection to something we're more familiar with and plays on those connections. Yeah. No, absolutely. And um, yeah, I, I certainly would not want to, uh, I certainly wouldn't want to step on the uh, ending on this either because of the fact that it is a, you're, like you said, it's a movie that's maybe not as familiar as, uh, is not really as familiar as uh, a lot of the other ones we've talked about, um, certainly in terms of David Lynch's work, which, I mean, really plays on that, not just Blue Velvet, but, I mean, you know, when we talked about Mulholland Drive, when we talked about Inland Empire and even Lost Highway, um, have that combination of film noir and horror mm -hmm. that really play into them. And I mean, he, he's, he's somebody who's basically made a career because I mean, you look at Twin Peaks, it's the exact same way. Um, oh, certainly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is this, I, I love the use of New Orleans as the backdrop uh, as the main backdrop here. I mean, it starts out in New York and then goes to New Orleans I love the uh, character of Charlotte Rampling plays in this movie. <laughs> uh, she really adds something to it. De Niro is it, it's it's chilling what how De Niro plays this character, and he he plays him very upfront and very you know very personable, but you can also see a bit of the cold blooded De Niro as well. I love that scene with the egg, yeah. you know, because in mythology, uh, eggs, you know, represent life in a certain way. And he's cracking it, and yeah. you know, <laughs> um, uh, one thing I found out recently that really fascinates me is that his nails get longer in each scene, but mm -hmm. only like a tiny little bit, like imperceptibly. So it's not supposed to be something you notice, but. Um, it's just something to kind of needle with your head a little bit. And I love those kinds of details. Um, so for anybody who is seeing these films for the first time, go to Alan Parker's website because he has really in-depth articles about all of his films. He wrote sometime, obviously, before he passed, but some of them were written for you know DVD inserts and some of them were written for magazines. And I guess some of them were probably uh, just written for the site, but there are, you know, pages and pages and pages of really great detailed information on the background and production of these films. And if you read the Wikipedia entries, they're often just quoting those articles. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you want to really get into these films and try to get into his head a little bit, go to a site and read those because they're really fascinating. Yeah, and uh, Mickey Rourke in this movie, he, he is such a great... He's such a great actor for that traditional film noir private detective who basically yeah. gets in over his head. And I... I you know, it's, it's interesting because of the fact that, I mean, if you're familiar with work 
now more than likely you're familiar with basically anything from the wrestler on, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily representative of who he is as a performer. I'm still very, uh, very much a novice in terms of a lot of his early, a lot of his work in the eighties, but you, you see something like this or nine and a half weeks even, or, uh, just a short, small role in body heat. And you can see that there's something about him as a performer that's very natural and very, just very captivating to watch. There's um, there's something um, deeply sexual too. There's something about he's very handsome, but in uh, an almost beat up kind of way. And you know, so it's ironic that he became a boxer and wound up messing up his face. But you know, like there is a sort of um, it is kind of fascinating that there is this kind of sexual subtext that he just brings with him in that period mm-hmm. that like he didn't really have to um, play it. He was just there. And uh, there's also something really striking about De Niro being so handsome and, um, but still off putting at yeah. the same time. Mm-hmm. Like there's something really interesting about the way he attracts and repels kind of, I think of Lugosi as Dracula in a sense, there's something very foreign about it that, mm-hmm. Um, especially in the Victorian time that Lugosi would have played it, you know, there was a, a definite sense of um, something deeper going on there. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that whenever, you know, my wife is used to seeing De Niro um, now, as he is now, you know, um, the elder mob type character that he tends to play often the the more comedic roles and so you know there's times where she's like oh yeah young Nero can get it oh my goodness you know like <laughs> he, such a, he had such a different power back then yeah yeah well and it's funny because of the fact that this came out the exact same year as the untouchables and you know seeing him oh, as God. al capone in that like he he has that exact same presence, but it's much more it, the the way he responds is much more extrovert. It's much more of a he he's he's playing he's he's bringing his physical presence to the table in the way that he really doesn't in Angel Heart, but it's just as menacing all the same. And um, you know that's a few decades removed from the period, but it's kind of similar enough that a modern audience would go, oh yeah, it's in the past, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a certain um, drive to that performance that Lou Cipher doesn't have. Like, Cipher is much quieter. Yeah. He's much more sinister in his way, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, I I kind of, one of the things I, you know, I, I love those broad can't be villain performances and I, I mentioned Vincent Price you know, here but like I also kind of like those performances where you really have to lean into the villain to hear what mm-hmm. he's saying you know, there's something uh alluring about that because you have to get closer and then but it's more dangerous and so there's that push and pull that's really interesting yeah um and uh, I will say, as a, a sort of a nut to anyone who has seen the film, 
I think it's really interesting that Lucifer hangs around a church that preaches the prosperity gospel. <laughs> uh, I think that's very intriguing, and I suppose is probably a fairly pointed remark, mm. but um, I won't say more for potentially ruining it for someone who hasn't seen it yet. Yeah, this this is a uh, this this is a wonderful uh, piece of film noir as well as horror that really is it's it's something where it it's it's another you know it, it's another character that kind of gets too far into his head to a certain extent and no, certainly yeah and uh you you can kind of see that being this case with pink as well and uh birdie and i i i think it's interesting that you're you have these characters by in all three of these films by Alan Parker who are so sometimes that are so invested in what's going on within them that they kind of lose sight of the, the, the reality of situations. And I think that's kind of an interesting uh, thing that kind of ties all three of these movies together. Well, and in the case of Angel Heart in particular, um, it does harken back to Sophocles very much. Like the way he structured his tragedies was there were, usually in the form of Tiresias, but often other characters would be saying to the tragic hero, like, don't go down this road. This will, this will lead to your ruin. Don't do this. This is a terrible idea. And of course, they would tell him to piss off and go straight forward anyway. <laughs> and I kind of love that this is that, you know, that structure is there in a modern context. Right. Like you see it in Shakespeare too, but it's structured differently. But, you know, the tragic hero always has this several opportunities to turn back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he could have just gone home so many times like he could have gone back to new york and it would have been fine yeah and i don't know if it was the money or if it was that sense of uh not wanting to leave it unsettled or i don't know what it was specifically that motivated him but like there were so many times where he could have turned back and he could have just said okay fine too deep for me i'm gone forget it but he didn't. And um, it's so interesting to see something from thousands of years ago and something very contemporary kind of coming together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you have any more thoughts that you want to share about these movies and Alan Parker in particular before we wrap up? Um, well, you know, I um, I could talk so much about all of them it's so complicated because there's just so many ideas that i'd love to play on but um one thing since we are talking about characters uh, leading to their ruin uh, i did want your opinion on something in the wall on the album specifically it begins and ends with the phrase is this where we came in which is uh, a reference to for some of the uh, younger listeners it used to be when you went to the movies, they would just have stuff playing all day and you just bought a ticket and went in and you could go in whenever and hang out for as long as you wanted. And so a lot of times people would come in in the middle of a movie and they would wait till it all came around again. And they say, oh yeah, I saw this part. Okay, let's go. And some people interpret that phrase being used 
in that way to uh, uh, to mean that what Pink is going through is a cycle that he will just repeat over and over again until his death. But I tend to look at it more as he's breaking that cycle now. And mm -hmm. hopefully after the trial, he's going to wise up and try to become a better person. And I want to know what you feel, if you have an opinion. Um, I, I'll be honest, I had not really thought about that. Um, you know, I, you know, you, you look at, you look at, uh, you look at the wall, you look at how, um, it is, you, you look at how it is structured and it's interesting that you think you, you look at it as if, as pink might be finally breaking that cycle and I do kind of see to a certain extent, maybe, it, maybe it's because I might be a little bit more pessimistic about it. I, I kind of see him, I do kind of see him, this is, this is kind of where he lives now. And this is, like, there's, he's at that point of no return, and he's, there's nothing that can really, uh, there's nothing that can really, uh, resonate with him that brings him out of it now. Um, I I think that is kind of interesting because of the fact that you would hope that when comfortably numb happens, he you know that that's basically the point where it's like you he's hit rock bottom. He's basically he's basically bleeding out on almost basically suicidal at that point. And the whole point of something like comfortably numb is I'm I'm at peace with my misery. I'm at peace. I'm at peace with my depression to the point where I'm I'm just ready. And then when he when he comes out of it, he is he he finds himself being he he finds himself ready to lead he he's ready to take himself as as a leader of people to society's ruin and so to a certain extent i kind of look at that it, it's funny i i almost look at that as that that's him being the point of no return where there really isn't redemption for him and uh you know i i i like your version better because of the fact that it does it does imply the fact that there is a way back from that depth of despair and uh well, that I, depth of feeling um i i much the, rather prefer that but i you know i i almost look at it as the opposite well there's something very interesting about that metaphor and I'm going to try to tie this into a broader thing if you'll give me just a second to get to it but um so much of the building blocks in this story are things that have multiple uses like a brick can build something or it can smash a window a hammer can break something as easily as it can build something um, a wall can protect you, but it can also isolate you. Right. And so these metaphors are kind of, you know, and so one could look at the you know, tear down the wall, that refrain as, you know, we're going to do it. We're finally going to break free of this cycle and everything is going to be great. 
or it could just be like, well, we're just going to rebuild it, you yeah. know, like, and the, the children picking up the rubble at the end, you know, it, is that uh, a memory of his childhood? Is that um, the start of uh, a new wall, perhaps, you know, and so it's very interesting. And I think that a lot of that kind of metaphor was probably what interested Alan Parker about the story. Like, I know he spoke dismissively about the film because it wasn't very well achieved and it was so experimental. He thought of it kind of as a student film, but I don't think he quite realized what he had achieved with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting, um, partially because he didn't have people like us telling him how great it was, <laughs> you know, um, that I, I don't think he quite understood what he was able to do with that. And if you look at uh, some of the um, ways that things cross cut and uh, run through time, you know, uh, in, a, in a weird way, he's... Um, taking something here that he's going to use for the rest of his career. Like in this one film, he's experimenting with techniques that he's going to use forever. Yeah. Like if you look at uh, Avita, it's um, the structure is much more conventional by uh, compared to that, but it also, as far as musicals go, it's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the ways the violence is intercut with uh, those bits of Perun taking off his jacket and the Descomisados cheering and things like that, you know, he's using um, a version of a technique that he created there, yeah. you know, or that he refined, you know, he's refining it to something that's a little more palatable. And with mm -hmm. Birdie, you know, there's this cross-cutting between time and that kind of thing. And with Angel Heart, there's some of that, you know, because the past is important to that story because you've got to look at the, uh, um, you've got to look at, you know, you're trying to find a person who's been missing for a decade. You know, how do you do that specifically? Mm -hmm. And so it's so interesting to me that in this one very, a kind of messy film, he's um, creating the building blocks of something that he's going to use forever. Yeah. And, um, but it, but it doesn't feel like, uh, it, it feels a lot of times when you see something that's an experiment, like you look at um, uh, the lodger, you look at Hitchcock, you see a lot of techniques that he'll use again later, but it feels in some ways not fully realized. But in this film, it's a fully realized film in its own right. But he's still going to refine these techniques as he goes along. Yeah. Yeah. And I do wonder, you know, and you'll notice that uh, he never really gave that level of control again. Like Roger Waters is a very um, demanding personality mm -hmm. and a very strong I don't mean egotistical necessarily as a negative, but, you know, he's a very um, demanding kind of uh, person to work with. But you look at most of his other films, and with the exception of maybe a co-writer, he is shaping it more on his own. And I wonder, you know, how much of that was just like, no, I don't want to do that again. And how much of it was just like his own um, 
choice. Like, you know, I, I, I work with that strong personality and I don't want to do that again. You right. know, let's get someone who's a little more evil. Right. Um, no, uh, that, that's, no, I mean, that's, that's an interesting, uh, uh, that is an interesting thing. And yeah, I mean, it, all three, watching these three movies for this episode really, it, it not only makes me, uh, appreciate even more uh, about uh, Alan Parker in general, but it just, it makes me interested to see those films that I have not watched from him yet. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I definitely appreciate you bring this, uh, bring him to my attention as a possible subject. And it was it was it was great to really it was really great to uh, bring to uh, dive into his work a bit more, and really get me excited about uh, watching more of his films in the future. And uh, and and you know not all of them are, are are big downers like this. Like Bugsy Malone is light and silly, and you know, and even though fame is very dark, it does have its moments of levity. It does have some really beautiful human moments, and then Birdie does too. So I'm speaking more to the audience here. If you're just like, oh God, these are all depressing. I don't want to do that. Please, <laughs> like, yeah. um, and I hope that. Uh, since we, I hope somebody uh, goes in, uh, hears this, and decides to try to hunt some of these down. Yeah. Um, because I feel like I said before, I feel like he's kind of being forgotten now, and that would be a big tragedy. Yeah, it definitely would. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and um, yeah, I mean, you you can you can definitely like I already told you where you can find Birdie on. Uh, I I think Angel Hers on the Stars uh, app, but both of those are readily available for rent, so you can definitely check those out. Uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, I think, is really kind of the only one that's harder to find, but it's basically because of the fact that it's... I I do believe it's probably legal issues uh, with the rights and the music rights that is... uh, And plus the fact that MGM films have basically jumped from studio to studio over the past 40 years. So, yeah, I um, don't know who's got what at this point. Yeah. And I know, um, I know that... Um, Amazon has bought MGM, but I don't know which ones they still control right now. Yeah. So uh, I hope that some of them find a home and in Amazon. But you know, I don't yeah. know if that's going to happen. And, well, and the and the DVD I well, and the DVD I have of the walls from uh, the uh, Columbia Music Video label. So it's basically from uh, it's is basically from Columbia's music. Uh, Music department. So, who who the hell knows what that means at this point? Um, oh, certainly. It's but yeah, like a easy to find. Bugsy Malone's easy to find. Some of these you have to pay three or four bucks, but they're there. Yeah, you know? yeah. But uh, Matthew, as always, thank you very much for uh, joining me. Thank you for having me. I'd like to thank Matthew for joining me today to talk about Alan Parker, and I'd like to thank him for uh, bringing the idea of talking about Alan Parker. To my uh, to my attention, because of the fact that it really did make for a great conversation, I think for the two of us. That's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. 
uh, September and October, November and December are going to be kind of nuts. But I'm looking forward to the variety of guests, the variety of subjects, and uh, you're going to hear some people you've never heard before on this podcast. You're going to hear from people that you've definitely heard from before on this podcast. And uh, either way, I'm looking forward to those discussions. That's going to be it for the for this episode of the podcast, check me out again at uh, patreon.com backslash sonicsima at uh, the sonicsima YouTube channel on uh, as well as Apple, Google, Spotify, Good Pods. And finally, as always, my written work is at www.sonic-sima.com. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.